everyone. It's Eric. Thanks for tuning into Capital Stories. In this podcast, we talk to real people about real issues and look for intersections of life and faith to encourage you in your personal walk with Jesus. One reason we started this podcast was to educate ourselves on complex social justice issues. And we're intentionally setting aside one of our very first episodes to gain a greater understanding of one such issue. I don't know about you, but spending this incredible amount of time in my home over the past 14 months during the pandemic has made me so much more aware of the true gift it is to have the safety and shelter from a literal house over my head. This isn't a luxury afforded to many people around the globe, and frankly, it's a luxury that's becoming more and more unattainable to many people here in our local communities. And so today on the podcast, we're sharing an interview Tara had with Mike Ackerlow, who spent the last 20 years working in the area of affordable housing. He spent a decade working for the mayor of Salt Lake City, strengthening and revitalizing communities as the director of housing and neighborhood development. And he's now the executive director of the Community Development Corporation of Utah, which serves tens of thousands of Utahns seeking housing assistance, provides counseling as well as builds and rehabilitates homes and complexes. In this episode, Mike gets into the weeds to educate us on the complicated issue of affordable housing. And he also encourages us as people of faith, to change the narrative around how we engage with the marginalized and with people experiencing homelessness by asking ourselves some hard questions. So with that, here's episode two of Capital Stories. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for joining us today. We're going to start off On a personal note, you graduated from um, Columbia with your master's in real estate development, did that for a while, and then took quite a shift. Talk to me about that in starting Project Homeless Connect and um, what that shift kind of looked like in your life. Sure. Um, uh, I... When I came back from New York, I thought in my mind I was going to be the big, rich, successful real estate developer. Not saying that's a bad thing, but I thought that's where I was going to go. And I had all these plans and I did all this stuff. And and the recession hit in 08 and I had overextended myself financially. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had bought all this property that we were going to build these homes on and all this stuff. And the margins were great. We're going to be rich, right? And so that was my focus as this you know, graduate and of, uh, of my, with my masters. And anyway, um, then the recession hit and, uh, it really hit my family hard, me and my wife and my kids. And I was not prepared. And I ended up taking a job with, uh, mayor Ralph Becker mm-hmm. in economic development of the city. And in my mind, I was like, I will not be here long. Government is not the answer. I was just like, you know, so set on my ways. And I got in there and a year later, it had its hooks, its claws in me. And I didn't leave for 10 years, about 10 years. And it changed my perspective on so much. I'm not saying, I mean, we all have different opinions on government, right? What it can and can't do, what it should or shouldn't do. But what I, for me personally was, it was a an opportunity for me to see uh, recognize my own privilege to recognize the blessings that I've had in my life um, and to recognize the heartache and the pain that so many people are suffering through right now. Um, we used to do this. We had a renovation program at the city and I used to like to go out with my team and we would go look at four or five of our clients, their homes before and after. 
it was so heartbreaking to walk into these homes and see what people, the conditions people are living in. And they would have, you know, eight or nine or 10 people living in this home because grandparents are there and the sister moved in and her two kids and whatever. And I remember walking into one house and the whole front room was just mattresses. There was no furniture other than mattresses. And we were doing a bathroom because the, the father had um, suffered an injury and could no longer work and he needed an ADA bathroom. So we went in and fixed up this bathroom so it was accessible. Um, and I was just shocked, Tara, at like at the conditions. And I was very really saddened by it. I was saddened that we've allowed this to happen. Um, and so it really shifted my entire perspective. And when I left the city, I came over to the Community Development Corporation of Utah. It's a nonprofit. And um, we really have focused over the past 30 years on home ownership, but we've now moved into multifamily. We're building and we, we bought some apartments. And I think we've really tried to become more focused on the human side of this issue. And that is, to me, that fulfills a, a, a spiritual mm-hmm. part of my life. And so you talked about Project Homeless Connect. There seems to be some intentionality in the name of that There is. I, I wish I could say I came up with a name. I didn't. It's actually a national um, uh, event. It started in San Francisco to address uh, the lack of access to services for people from or of that people experiencing homelessness could not get to. So they created this one day event where they brought in all the service providers and then they brought in, and then uh, those experiencing homelessness could come in and, and have access to it in one place. It was great. So it's really spread across the country. And um, years ago I was at a conference and I was actually on a panel about homelessness and this woman brought it up and I'm like, wait, what is this? So after the meeting we talked and she told me about it and I came back here and Mayor Biscupsi was the mayor of the time and I told her all about it. And I said, hey, I want to do this. And so she gave me uh, her support and we, in 2016, pulled off, our, pulled off our first one. I don't know how we did it. Honestly, someday I'll tell you stories about that because it was like, honestly, a miracle that it happened. That first year we had about 600 people come through. Mm-hmm. The really cool thing about it that I love is it's a, there's a strong volunteer component. So um, we have, you know, all these, we had a hundred service providers and then we had 600 um uh, homeless individuals come through and then we had about 400 and so community volunteers and we would pair them up with somebody who was homeless and they would spend the day connecting. walking around the salt palace connecting to these services but it goes beyond the service connection it's the human connection yes and the first year every year we do this we actually have um, our volunteers fill out a survey mm-hmm. and they write about their experience and they were so moving. And, and my wife and I down, typed them into our database and we wanted to record these. And my wife was over there just crying as she was typing because they were so beautiful. People saying, you know, I've always looked at, at homelessness as a, as a person's problem. You created this problem for yourself. You're homeless because of the bad choices you made. And when we did training for our volunteers, one of the first things we said was, you set all judgment aside. It is not our place to judge. We're not going to ask them why they got they became homeless. If they volunteer that to you, great. Listen, empathize. Don't f- try to fix it. Well, if you wouldn't have done drugs, you wouldn't be homeless today, right? You would have done this because we don't understand the full story. And it was um, miraculous. It was beautiful. So 2019 was our last full one because obviously last year was a different year. Um, we had we helped uh, 1,084 wow. people, so wow. half of our homeless wow. population were assisted, and we had 900 and some odd volunt- community volunteers. Wow, yeah. over over one to one almost. Yep, over 4,000 mm. individual services were accessed. And we'll day. put on our on our resources as well. 
if that happens in Please. 2021, we're yeah, open we're getting to your, close to your website. So <laughs> hoping it happens. Oh, I hope so too. Yes. You mentioned the word spiritual, and you said it fills something spiritual for you, and you are uh, a man of, of deep faith in God. Um, and just share with us how that what what you mean when you said that. Yes, I am a man of deep faith. I uh, and curious come faith. from a curious something faith. I like about your faith is it's it's a it's a curious faith. Yeah. To say I never want to stop learning. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to stop learning. I don't want to stop learning about about all the pieces mm-hmm. in this space that is hard and broken yeah. and painful, but yet in which we can still see and experience and try to understand yes. God and God as Jesus who walked around this earth. Yes. And demonstrated compassion. Yes. You and I were talking the other day about our one of our favorite scriptures where Christ announces himself in the synagogue and yeah. he says, what am I here for, right? Christ didn't give a checklist of the things people had to do to get into heaven. What he did was he said, I'm here to liberate the captive, to bring sight to the blind, to help the poor and oppressed. Um, that's what he did. And that's who he surrounded himself with. And that means... That that's what that's what drives me. It's what drives me every day when I go to work. It's what drives me when I do Project Homeless Connect. Is that um, I feel this is a place where Christ would be, mm-hmm. right? I don't think Christ is going to be making the you know deciding who's getting what money. Maybe he would, but he's really down <laughs> with the people, right? But he was saying, yeah. yeah. The person who was cast out, he had dinner with the person who was cast out. And we do Project Homeless Connect. We have we serve lunch and they sit together mm-hmm. and they have lunch together. Right, I mean, it's the breaking bread yeah. of people who are so different and come from these different backgrounds, and the humility and the beauty that's mm-hmm. there is is it just transcends anything else that we experience. I mean, there's just this, all of a sudden you feel like this holiness about it, and I think that's really what drives me. It, it drives me to be um, a compassionate empathetic person. I've kind of given up a little bit on this idea of working for my being so focused on my salvation that I'm not paying attention to what's going on now. We had a great book we talk about here. Um, Eternity begins now is something that, that. yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. Isn't that true? That we think about salvation as something that's going to happen instead of, and we focus it's on the checkboxes. And we focus on the checkboxes. Like, this is what um, I got to do for that salvation. I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, oh, I did that. I'm going to go serve those sandwiches oh, and I'm yeah. going to feel good. Exactly. You know, right. um, and, and, and there's the process of formation that happens in the humility that you said, in, the, in that moment of learning about my own privilege. And those poignant, precious moments of, of seeing ourselves, our mission for Capital Cares is um, that everyone deserves to see themselves and to be seen the way God sees them. And those moments of serving in that light, you know, that um, we hope to be transformed, to be yes. more like Him. There was a study done um, years ago, and it asked uh, homeless individuals what they want the most, and it gave them a list of things. And you know, housing, food, shelter, clothing, whatever. And the number one thing that came back was to be acknowledged, for somebody to say hello, to just be looked in the eye and acknowledged as a human being. And we marginalize people. We, we There's a number of reasons why we do it. But I think for a lot of us, and we see somebody who's homeless on the street, we get scared. 
we think, oh, maybe they're crazy. Maybe they're going to come after me. Maybe they want money. I'm just going to keep my eyes to the to my phone or on the concrete or whatever as I walk by. Um, and and I have found that um, I will often when I try, I, I try to do my best, but I look at them and tell them hello or say hello or whatever. And um, yeah, there's still I still have that little bit of fear inside of me that says, oh no, what are, you know, is this going to? What's the? Pre- I can't predict what's going to happen. Um, but it always ends out turns out to be really wonderful. Yeah, it it does. There's such power in being seen. I mean, we know that for ourselves, but imagine that much more for a person who feels totally unseen or unacknowledged or or marginalized, like you said. So I'm really glad that you brought up that point and it's such a good reminder. Um, I'm going to switch gears now um, to kind of get to some some hard facts for us and our audience to understand uh, more about just this topic of affordable housing, yes. which is complicated. And we know it's a problem, but the regular folks of us don't always understand exactly what the problem is or how to even right. think about it. And that's where I want to start by asking you to give us some definitions of these words sure. we throw around. So affordable housing, what does that mean? Housing is affordable if you don't spend more than 30 to 35% of your income on those housing costs. So kind of that's what we use as a gauge. People say, well, why is that? Why is it 30 not 50, whatever it's, I don't really have a good answer to that. It's just kind of been the industry standard is what the government uses a lot to make sure that people aren't spending more of their income on their, on their housing costs. Um, and they still have leftover money to take care of essential needs. The, the crisis that we're facing is incomes aren't keeping up with housing prices to buy a home is nearly impossible. Inventory is at one of its lowest points. Rental properties are extremely expensive. And people are forced to spend more, way more, yeah. in many cases than 30 or 35% yes. of their income yeah. just to, to on their on housing. A place to live. Okay. Right. So that's and why so it's a crisis. It's a crisis, that's what we're right? And, and so if you look, so let me, um, let me kind of give you some info here. So on the rental side, which is our biggest area, has been our biggest rent, uh, biggest crisis, although now homeownership is also getting up there. When we talk about somebody who's cost burdened, what we're saying is that person spends more than that 30% of their income on their housing costs, right? 50% of our renters are cost burdened. So half of our renters out there are spending more than 30% of their income on housing costs in Salt Lake. Yeah. But what's worse is that a quarter of our renters are extremely cost burdened, which means they're spending more than 50% of their income on housing costs. Now, it's just not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And when you think about somebody, especially maybe who, you know, a single mom with a couple kids who's maybe making $30,000 a year. And when we say 50%, that's still a big gap to 100%, right? So if you say even 50% and maybe another 20% on transportation costs, they may have 10, 20, 30% left over to live on on their income. So in some households, they've got at the end of the month, a few hundred bucks that they can spend on food, uh, clothing, healthcare, things like that. It, it doesn't work. And never mind having a reserve. Never mind having a reserve. No, you're never going to get emergency. out of it. Right, and right. now what we're even facing with the pandemic, are uh, uh, there, there's luckily been a moratorium on evictions, but there are loopholes that landlords have found to evict tenants. And 
eviction is a uh, a spy downward spiral for a lot of these renters. As uh, soon as you get evicted, your credit gets hit. You have an eviction on there. Landlords aren't going to rent to somebody who's evicted. You often have penalties and fees in in Utah. There's tr- called treble damages, and so these people are often paying three times the amount that they owe on their evictions. I mean, how do you ever get ahead if you're mm-hmm. low income? Great book on that. Evicted. The evicted. Yes, evicted it is book. A great, we'll put that in the resources. Yes, but very great, great book. painful book, but well worth book. Yeah, the well read. worth the read to understand what happens in that in that spiral, downward yeah. spiral that you mentioned about yeah. eviction. And you know, Utah isn't uh, abnormal. We really follow the national statistics on this. Um, our you know, are those percentages I just gave you are very uh, they're common across the country. That's kind of what everybody is seeing. Um, people just can't afford it. Let me give you let me give you a little some statistics yeah. here, really quick. From 2000 to 2018, rent in Salt Lake County rose 78 percent. More than two thirds occurred in the last five years. So, last five years, you've seen all these apartments being built in downtown. They're not affordable. Yeah, I want to get to that. They're mm-hmm. super expensive, right? People can't afford them. From 2000 to 2018, growth in average rent in Salt Lake County more than doubled the rate of inflation and almost doubled increases in renter median income. So there's an example there's, that points it out. People cannot afford it. Their, their incomes are not keeping up with their costs of living. And so they get into situations where they're paying too much or they're living, they're, they're renting a place that's unhealthy and unsafe because um, it's lower cost. Um, it's just this continual impact on, on households. They're not able to get out of these situations. Well, before we get into talking about how those issues can be addressed mm-hmm. in and advocated for in different ways, let let me just define ask you to define a couple other things sure. that I that that we we yeah. say. Uh, section eight. Mm-hmm. So somebody hears the term section eight. What does that define that for us? Sure. Section eight is a voucher program okay. that allows somebody to pay um, up to thirty percent of their income on their housing costs, um, and then the voucher covers the rest. And so a Section 8 voucher is, um, we are limited to the number of vouchers that every city has, every state has. Um, they're very difficult to get. Um, there's a waiting list. Long waiting list. Like five years. I think mm-hmm. they just close their waiting list. So if you need a Section 8 voucher, you got to get on a waiting list and hopefully in the next five years you'll, you'll get one. Rapid rehousing. Mm-hmm. That's another one that I've heard thrown around lately. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So rapid rehousing is typically associated with homelessness, getting people out of homelessness and into a housing situation that may not be permanent, but gets them in a place where they can they can at least have they're not in the shelter system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's an immediate medium immediate placement. It's not permanent supportive housing, uh, which is kind of more traditional uh, and more needed. I don't want to say it's more needed. It's equally as needed for uh, a long-term solution to homelessness. It's a, it's a housing that is wrapped with services. So somebody who has mental illness, someone who's chronically homeless, someone who has mental illness, drug uh, abuse issues, they get in there and they into this housing. Plus they have a service provider and a case manager who helps them stay in their housing. Mm. 96% of those people um, just just came out of uh, we just got this data in oh. the last few weeks 96% of people who are placed in permanent supportive housing stay in their housing that's good so it's a solution that it works. is that's a solution yes it's just very costly to do right yeah the support services that surround that, that and, and, and to build I mean we're building a tax credit project right now in Sugar House we'll break ground this fall uh, 65 units um, targeted to very low income. We have 11 units set aside for homeless veterans. We'll have the services there, but there's no cash flow for us. Like, so once we lease this up, you know, the, the, what we can charge for rent 
and what our debt service is, is so close that really we don't make any money off the cash flow. We do get a developer fee up front and that's about it. But it's it's so costly to build these. And then like you said, it's also where do we get the funding to, to bring in all those services? Right. So that's another issue, right? Right. Um, somehow we're doing it, but we're not. I mean, we have our last point in time count for homeless uh, people on the street was around 2,000. And so we're seeing about 2,000 2, people 2,000 homeless night. people on the street. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what's the solution? Well, housing is the solution. So can we build 2,000 units? It's unlikely. Mm-hmm. Define to- for me low income. <clears throat> Low income, moderate mm-hmm. income. Who who qualifies? What sure. are some stats about that in our yeah. in our community? Um, when we talk about area median income, AMI, AMI, mm-hmm. that is based on a annual uh, assessment of our area and incomes, and it's done by HUD. And they look at it and they say, you know, a family of four makes eighty seven thousand dollars in Salt Lake County right now. So then you base your AMIs, your area median income, mm-hmm. off of that. So somebody of eighty percent of AMI is eighty percent of that eighty seven thousand for a household of four. 60%, 40%, 20%, so forth. So now as I- You slipped another acronym in there. Did I what? Our listening audience is going to need to know. HUD. Oh my gosh. Housing and urban development. It's there you the, go. It's the federal level of housing. Mm-hmm. So those are really people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to say around 30%, 40% of AMI. So they're below that amount, right? So I'm going to read to you those are 65 and older, people with disabilities, people who are living on, on social security, people who are homeless. We're talking about extremely low income, right? Extremely low to nothing. When we talk about like a low wage worker, mm-hmm. those are kind of that next step up, 30 right. to 50% of AMI. Right. So these are people who work at the grocery store, who mm-hmm. are working in retail, who are- Who cannot afford a two bedroom apartment in our city. For, yeah, custodian. Yes, they can't afford They it. can't afford no. a fa- And we have uh, clearly so dependent on service workers mm-hmm. in our city, yeah. which is based on so much tourism and the service industry and mm-hmm. yet can't afford no. and can't afford to live here. No. So, okay. So yeah. go back to the numbers just so, so 30 to 50% this educated. is from 2019, I think. So it's gone up a little bit, right? But so th- in 30, 30 to 50% of AMI would have been about 17,500 to about 29,000. So that's what those people are making every year. Okay. Okay. An individual. Now what they could afford in rent and utilities is around 750 to 800 bucks. That's what they can afford with that 30%. You will not find that yeah. anywhere, right? Um, now we start getting to the kind of the lower income, which is called low income. That's 50% to 80%. You know, a little more flexibility. These may be like a teacher. Um, I think EMTs. A little more discretionary flight income. Attendant. Yeah. So they're, they're able to afford a little more max of like for a family of four around $66,000 a year. You know, they're, yeah, okay. they can yeah. probably afford a little more. Once you get to 80 and above, you're really talking about people who, um, you know, at 80%, those are really people who can buy a home. 60 to 80%, people can kind of buy a home. Really, 80% is like anybody can afford a, to purchase a home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 100%, now you're getting into, right. you know, what people are making. And over that, um, it's really interesting. You know, 80% used to kind of be our target number was, was affordability. Just with, how expensive things are now. Excuse me. Sometimes we say 120% is the new 80. Wow. It's really hard for wow. even people, households at 120 or 100% to find housing that they can afford. In our community. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we and all see how, I mean, there's such little inventory. Such little available. Yeah. And, and 
so many people coming. That's another yes. topic. But how many people are moving mm-hmm. to different parts of Utah? You and can't that's find just anything. you can't. And, find and, and when a house goes up for sale, you have multiple offers on it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. we are always trying to find homes to renovate mm-hmm. and sell. Mm. And we'll put our offer in, and we'll get a call from the agent like, "Is this your highest and best?" Because we have thirty-eight offers, and we want to make sure. And like, Right offers, and we always offer over asking price. Okay, well, thank you for some of that, some of those definitions, so we understand what we are we're talking about when mm-hmm. we're talking about low income, when we're talking about affordable housing, and specifically what the current crisis looks like. Give me just a little bit of history on this topic. I had an interesting experience recently where I was asked to join a small group here at Capital for their evening discussion, and this group of women had decided during 2020 that they were going to meet once a month and discuss a particular topic. Mm-hmm. And they did healthcare. They talked about being anti-racist. They started to hit on all these different topics. And then they would hold each other accountable and to do research. So I joined them this this evening for their t- for their conversation. And they said they had come to the conclusion that so much boiled down to housing mm-hmm. and that this was there was just systemic issues mm-hmm. related to housing mm-hmm. and it, they just kept like tra- traveling back along right that like unraveling the thread and it just kept coming back to housing and uh, we had a great conversation that night but it was a good reminder that there are just systemic history of issues in how our city was laid out, in um, and the challenges that it that it presents. And I wonder yes. if you could speak to that a little bit. Yes. Oh my gosh, it's such a loaded question because there's so much there. Um, housing has is probably one of the most important things because obviously you need a safe place to live, uh, but not only the type of structure you're living in, but where you live. Um, and you and I have talked about Raj Chetty, who is a yes. economist and yes. one of my favorite mm-hmm. uh, people. He is so dang smart. Mm-hmm. And, um, but he, he did a lot of studies about the future success of children depending on their zip code. And so getting into a place where uh, it was safe, but they could afford their home and they weren't constantly moving, gave them roots, gave them a place to, to live. The other thing that he looked at was um, areas of opportunity. So uh, they did this kind of study where they, they had this big... Um, they gave some family vouchers to live uh, vouchers to live in in upper um, income areas, and then the other half were in the lower income areas. And they tracked that data to see what happened to those kids and those children that came from the higher opportunity. They were raised in those with better schools, uh, with better access to transportation, groceries, healthier foods, those kinds of things. They showed in the long term had higher income potential as opposed to those kids who stayed in the low income areas. So. So this is so. So the point there is where kids are raised matters. Have the access to opportunity. Yes, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, the way our cities have been designed historically is it they're they're very segregated. Um, they've been segregated by race for four hundred years or however long we've been here, right? But they've also been um, socioeconomically segregated as well. Um, east side, typically white, higher income. West side, higher minority population tends to be lower income. There was something really interesting back in the mid-1900s, the Federal Housing Administration made cities do. They made them map out their cities of desirable areas, somewhat desirable areas, 
less desirable and dangerous areas. So they had so cities had to go map these areas out. And they used these maps to determine where people would get mortgages. Well, the cities that were predominant or the areas that were predominantly minority um, tended to be the, the less desirable areas. So they didn't get access to the same mortgage products as the desirable areas did. So they could, uh, there were, there tended to be more predatory lending. Um, people couldn't buy. There was disinvestment in these areas and it's continued on today. So it's even, it's interesting. In, this is the redlining. This is the this redlining. Is what it's that exactly, means. That's what it's called is redlining where the, the banks and the mortgage companies redlining the districts that could and couldn't get mortgage assistance. You know, and, and you look at communities today and that's carried over. Um, about five years ago, this when I was the director of housing at Select City, we did a we did some data analysis uh, using some HUD data and looked at racially and ethnically concentrated areas of poverty. And it is so interesting to see that those same areas align with the map that Salt Lake City created back in the 1950s for these for redlining. I mean, they, they almost lay over each other. So Central City and West Side were areas of concentrated poverty for racial and ethnic minorities. And um, th those were the maps that were created back in there. So you can see that this has continued on. Um, these areas have tended to stay lower income. And then they've not had the kind of investment that other neighborhoods have had. Um, there's some change going on, and that's good. I mean, I think you know we're trying to bring more affordable housing to the east side. I just mentioned this project we're doing in Sugar House or by Brickyard. It's 65 units, and when I talk about AMI, this is for 25 to 55 percent AMI. So we're talking very low, low extremely low income, low. to very low income, right? Yes. In Sugar House, yes, that's unheard of. Yes, this is actually is not. We're the first ones to do this. It's not happened before. Really? Yeah. I mean, there's other buildings in Sugar House that have affordable components. Mm -hmm. They've gotten a certain number of units, mm -hmm. but this is the first 100% mm -hmm. affordable tax credit project. Well, I want to make two points on, on this. One is just to let everybody know, we will put a link to that Raj Chetty, mm -hmm. uh, his article in The Atlantic, which is excellent, that talks about this upward social mobility yes. that's linked to his Opportunity Atlas. Mm -hmm. Man, there are so many apartments going up around mm -hmm. the city in general. Mm -hmm. are, are they required mm -hmm. to have a certain amount of affordable housing uh, units in those? I, I'm thinking about this. Salt Lake has this reputation, at least according to the data, Raj Chetty's data of offering access to upward social mobility, mm -hmm. which is going to mean mm -hmm. access to opportunity depending on where you live. What's anything happening? No, no. Uh, the the his atlas. Um, it's really good to look at. I think it'll be interesting to see how it tracks over the next five years, mm -hmm. because um, our minority population in Salt Lake City is growing, mm -hmm. and they tend to be low income, and so it's going to be interesting to see if that rate goes down. My mother was visiting recently, and she actually comes pretty regularly, but hasn't been in a year or so. And just as we're driving around saying, my goodness, <laughs> the amount, are the people coming? Who's living here? And that's another topic, but because clearly they're, they are, but, but what is made available and there's not. Oh, no, they're leased up before they're done. I mean, and, and, and so you, your, your question was, are they required to put anything in? Yeah. Not typically. Um, if they use city financing, mm -hmm. any federal financing, those comes with strings. Those, those, that funding comes with strings. Mm -hmm. So, uh, they would require, be required to, to provide a certain number of units at a certain AMI. Mm -hmm. 
So when I was at the city, we, we, we had a housing trust fund and people could borrow money from us. But with that would require a 55 year um, restriction that those units had to stay affordable. And so that was really good, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if they don't use any federal funds or city funds, there's no they, requirement no, to do that. No requirement. I think the city has an opportunity to study best practices and to look at the areas. Why, where has this worked and why? And let's, let's adopt those ways of doing it. Were there other bills in the legislative session earlier this year that were hopeful mm-hmm. that had to do with truth and rent or um, different topics yeah. related to affordable housing? Right. So there's one where, um, yes, truth and rent and fees, uh, lowering right. fees because, right. you know, somebody who's low income and they're going to apply for apartments right. applications, they're paying all these fees for it and not getting approved. For any. <sighs> that has been so difficult in, in working with, with folks that are trying to transition mm-hmm. out of uh, low and in moderate income positions and, and, and trying to get these apartments and finally getting apartments or getting denied. They can, and landlords can charge 50 or a hundred dollars mm-hmm. per application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Non-refundable yeah. for every apartment, or they sign a lease and does not have to be disclosed to them what these additional fees are. Right. And and that's going to do exactly what you talked about at the beginning of us talking, where the amount that they're going to have to pay is going to be more than 30 or 35% yes. because of these unknown fees. Right, right. Well, and, and if you think somebody, you know, a single mom with two kids, and we, single moms and minorities have been the most impacted groups by the pandemic. They've lost their jobs. A lot of these were service industry type jobs. Those have gone away. So they are really in a tough spot. If you're paying a hundred bucks for every application and you go to five apartment buildings, you're 500 bucks. You know, for somebody who doesn't have to worry about housing, maybe 500 bucks isn't that much money. But for somebody who is like struggling to make ends meet to feed their kids, 500 bucks can be yeah, oh that, my goodness. that down payment. It's a if huge they get the barrier. It's a huge barrier. We can end on something we can do. Yes. Because what can we do internally? What can we do externally when it comes to these issues of homelessness and affordable housing? Well, number one, we can take a little, sounds like we can take a little stock of ourselves and how we approach somebody who's homeless. A, we want to write their story. We can stop writing their story. B, we can approach them with a sense of humility, but we can, and C, we can look them in the eyes and give them that basic dignity of saying, I see you. Externally, um, we will put some links in our resources to be able to see what the Community Development Corporation is doing, uh, what Project Homeless Connect is up to, and that opportunity to do what we just talked about. Anything else just externally we can we can do, any action we can take, we believe in our faith as one that is to be demonstrated, our faith in action. That's what the Book of James tells us, my favorite book. Anything else as we finish up here, you would recommend that we can do to help make change? Mm. I think uh, one of the great things that came out of 2020, Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) there were a handful, uh, but one of the great things that came out of 2020 is a reckoning uh, individually and as a a society. Um, Why do we believe what we believe? And aren't we on the right path? I mean, you're right. You said at the beginning, sometimes we have to look inward and say, wait, why, why do I believe this? What's my natural reaction? What's my instinct to, you know, instinctual reaction to something around these issues? And when we get to that point of understanding, and like you said, that group the other night, getting together and learning, mm-hmm. it's the first thing we got to do. We got to take action. We got to step, we got to step forward mm-hmm. and we got to be a voice. And it's no more, I mean, it's nice to, like you said, go to the soup kitchen and, and provide sandwiches. That's a great thing. It's a needed service. I'm not downplaying that. 
We need to be more vocal, though, and demand that our leaders in our churches and our community and our politics, wherever it is, are held accountable for taking care of people who are marginalized. We've gotten away from it, I think. And it, it breaks my heart. I, I'm just watching what's happened over the last several years. We've gotten away from this human conversation, and it's us and them. And it's there's still kind of a mentality of you got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get to work and everything's going to be okay. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. People need support. So we need to be an active, loud voice. In a way that gives us an opportunity to connect. Yeah. That seems to be a key word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for thank you. joining this us today. So I always like to talk to you and learn about what you're learning about. Thanks for listening to Capital Stories. We've posted some resources relating to this episode on capitalstories.com. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe. We release new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. And in our next episode, Tara and I are talking to our friends, Chris and Sarah Spieler. They're such a fun and positive couple. And I think you'll enjoy listening to their extraordinary story of ordinary everyday discipleship with Jesus in their marriage, with their kids, and through the stress that comes from owning their own business. Be sure to tune in and we'll see you then.